0: Hello and welcome back to the Optimizing Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Marty Kendall. On this show, we take an engineering approach and speak to the experts about the insights into weight loss, fasting and nutrition, as well as real-life people about their journey of nutritional optimization. Hello, Chris Kelly. Great to chat, mate.
1: Thank you for having me, Marty. Bringing down the house prices.
0: <laughs> Doing the Rob Wolf thing. Six <laughs> listeners, can't be wrong. We're both exactly. Rob Wolf fanboys um, from way yeah, but back. Rob so, says it ironically, whereas I'm being serious. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're uh, the host of uh, the Nourish, Balanced, Thrive podcast, which I've been listening to forever. And uh, way back in the day, we had uh, the Optimizing Nutrition Facebook group when you're back on uh Facebook back in the day and we had lots of amazing chats and all learned a lot back then and a lot of uh, fascinating people and um way back in the day you had us on the keto summit um which was really cool a lot of big name people and uh real enjoyed being a part of that and uh great to chat again today after all these years
1: Yeah. Oh, the Keto Summit was amazing. That was a really exciting two-week period. I recorded, I think, 30 interviews in two weeks for the summit. And it really gained momentum quickly. And at the end, people were emailing us saying, oh, can I be part of this Keto Summit thing that you're doing? And it was tremendously successful. Yeah, it was such a privilege to be a part of that. Jeremy and Louise Hender did a fantastic job organising the back end of that.
0: Yeah, back when we're all hardcore keto zealots and keto is the new fresh thing on the block and uh, t- yeah. times have changed a little bit so how did you get into all this going back before keto how did you become uh, the nutrition biohacker guru that you are now <laughs> and you've even progressed on from the, to to a higher level of zen from there so oh my god later but how'd you get started
1: it's these things are insults to me marty you know that um <laughs> yeah of course um you know necessity is the mother of invention as they say And, you know, I used to say that things went downhill fast once I moved to the U.S. But, you know, more I've learned over the years, it's like harder to know exactly when this all started. Mm. You know, like, oh, it turns out that your maternal diet, mom's maternal diet was Mm. shit. And, you know, you were raised on some horrible formula that consisted of uh, casein, maltodextrin and soybean oil. Right. Like that was your (laughs) first food. And then you know, God knows what you were weaned on to from there, like some sort of yeah. rice gruel. Like, I just t- it's amazing I got as far as I did, honestly. But mm. things definitely went downhill fast when I moved to the U.S. I'm British, and I'm a software engineer. My background's in electronics and computer science, and I was lucky enough to be brought to the U.S. by a company you may have heard of called Yahoo, not quite as big as they used to be these <laughs> days. Um, and uh, they were amazing to me. I had a lot of time on my hands, and I got into competitive mountain biking. Uh, you know, once I was using more energy, I just started eating more of the food that I was already eating before I started Mm. riding a lot, which as you can imagine was cereal for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, pasta for dinner, all of the carbohydrates Mm. and all of the maltodextrin gels, and then Mm. maltodextrin solution in my bottles on my bike. Uh, I couldn't go for more than 40 minutes without consuming one of these maltodextrin gels, you know, and I do these really long rides four and five hours. And it crushed me. It just made me a wreck of a human. I had all this, mm. these gut problems, bloating, diarrhea, and um, what else? Insomnia, would, could sleep at any time apart from at night, you know, like, <laughs> I got to the point where I wouldn't bother going to bed. I would just stay on the couch watching old reruns of the Tour de France. It wasn't <laughs> worth going to bed because I'd never sleep there. And uh, just terrible fatigue, apart from when I was on my bike. You know, once I was warmed up, wow. I'd been on the bike for an hour, I was all right. But that was really the only time I felt decent. And the rest of the time, I was just so very tired. But the thing that got me to finally go to the doctor and ask what might be wrong was a girl kicked me off her stoop for not being able to get it up. I had a, a erectile dysfunction. And that was the thing that got me to go and see my primary care doctor. Wow. And the primary care doctor said, oh, well, here's some Viagra. And since you've got some gut problems, you should go see the gastroenterologist, which I did. And the gastroenterologist told me it was nothing to do with my diet, which still blows my mind. Can you <laughs> imagine? us in the gut, like, could say, "I mean, how could it not be? How could that possibly yeah. be true?" Um, so that aroused some suspicion. I have to say, I don't think I would have figured it out had it not been for the woman who is now my wife. Mm. She had recently completed her master's degree in food science and had been studying food allergies in the lab. And I had actually begun to make some changes to my diet. So I serendipitously discovered uh, Laurent Cordain's book with Mm. Joe Friel. Do you remember that? Paleo diet Mm. for athletes? Mm. Gosh, I struggle to remember the names of all these things now. And I would started tinkering with that, removing some grains. Definitely felt a little bit better. But uh, I kind of went out of the frying pan into the fire. You know, I constructed this diet that was also very... um, dense with potential food sensitivities, things like nuts and eggs and seeds mm, were basically mm. the staple of the diet i'm still trying to be vegetarian wow um, so my wife took my diet and just completely threw it out the window and created a really well formulated paleo diet and she was inspired heavily by the autoimmune paleo protocol mm. and she did that she found that diet just by like trying to find a paleo diet that didn't include so many things that she knew were mm. Allergies from the, what you know, the time she spent in the lab, and so we ended up on AIP, and it was transformational. My gut was almost completely healed in just a couple of weeks uh, gas, bloating, diarrhea, all gone. And you know, I had some quantitative things, I was measuring C reactive protein, and that dropped from
0: Ooh. Yep, sorry, my air conditioning's uh, going oh,
1: it is, sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, Yeah, my CIP dropped back into a normal-ish range. uh, And I just felt tremendously better overall. And then, of course, you have this question all of like, well, this happened to me. um, Who else might this have happened to? And, yeah, I got the opportunity to partner up with a local medical doctor who is a legit pro mountain biker. I did eventually get my pro license on the mountain bike. But I've always been a sort of hobby pro, you know, I could never make a living from it. And I'd certainly never win a race at that level. Whereas our co founder, who's a medical doctor, was like legitimately good. She had UCI points and never had any health problems, just been one of those annoying people that always knew how to take care of herself, you know, in fantastic shape. And she still is today. And, uh, but she was kind of frustrated with primary care doctoring because she'd been to medical school and she had the big, long, expensive education and was. You know, starts work on monday morning and is frustrated mm. by the fact that she's only got seven minutes with each patient so it seemed like there was sort of you know yin and yang there that um some synergy and we got together and started nourish balance thrive and i got the opportunity to be on rob's podcast and mm. also ben greenfield and that and was what started it all yeah. yeah we we had a bunch of people that just phoned me up and said hey whatever you did to fix that, I want to do the same. I Here's my credit card number. Yeah, that's kind of how it started. And, you know, the rest is history. We've you know, had thousands and thousands of clients since then. Yeah, wow. Um, so it's, it's been super good fun.
0: Yeah, it's been completely fascinating following all your podcasts and all your learning and your learning journey. And I've just, yeah, really enjoyed that. And you've tried to consolidate into useful practical programs and uh, just – you, you mentioned you tested your blood sugars initially way back then, and oh yeah. As someone who was burning a ton of energy, you had elevated blood sugars. What did you deduce from that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was essentially diabetic. My fasting blood mm. glucose was 120 milligrams per deciliter. Wow. That was kind of one of the things that got me into testing. Was like, mm. oh shit, this is definitely not right. What does this? I mean, because that's the first thing that you do when you do a test and you get a result right. Or well, what does this mean? And of course, yeah. you start searching for answers as to what that means and of course, when it's 120 milligrams, sorry, I don't know the uh, the standard international units that you'll need. seven. Okay. Menomole, no yeah, it's up yeah. there. Um, I'm like, shit, I'm diabetic. How could that be? I'm not, certainly not obese. But mm. this is like kind of one of the things I learned later on is that, you know, not all insulin resistant type two diabetes is obesity and too mm. many carbs. And of course, mm. um, not of course, but some people will know that the term insulin resistance was originally coined in conjunction with a case of iron overload, like in the literature Mm. from over a hundred years ago, I believe. Wow. And of course, you know, Rob has talked about this, that the septic patient is profoundly insulin resistant Mm. because your body's conserving that glucose for the immune system. Mm. It's exactly what you need right now. It's not pathological. Mm. It's a normal physiological response to to a, a challenge an infectious challenge and I I think that was probably what was going on for me to some extent at that time was gut dysbiosis loss of barrier function leaky gut slang term and you know some endotoxin from the gut is ending up in the blood and that's causing some low-grade inflammation I mean I knew my high sensitivity c-reactive protein was elevated and it came down Mm. when I changed my diet Hmm. And one would assume that was creating some degree of insulin resistance. And that was probably hmm. what my elevated fasting glucose was was about. And yeah. it's it's all resolved now and my, my body composition didn't really change much during that period.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And when you ramped up your protein percentage, a la Ted and recently <laughs> by the sounds of it. But um
1: I didn't take him seriously enough. I had to say, I mean, I've heard Ted talk about the protein leverage hypothesis and the importance of protein the p to e ratio and all of that mm. you know and I, I didn't take him seriously enough i have to say mm. and then quite recently like within the last year or two i really started to prioritize protein and make sure that mm. i i hit those targets i'd say those the targets that we use when working with clients, just mm. like you know 1.5 kilograms sorry grams per kilogram grams per of kilo. body mass per day yep. Yep. Um, which is, you know, about what you weigh in pounds in grams, right? So for me, I'm like almost hitting 150 grams of protein per day, mm. um, which is not that easy to do, I have to say. When you mm. think that two cans of sardines is 36 grams of protein, so mm. that's a lot of cans of sardines, you know. You have to go um, out of your way, and then, yeah. then all of a
0: sudden, your wife is saying, "Hey, are you uh, preparing for a, uh, a stage show, bodybuilding?" <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, like I, what's
1: going on? For the first time in my life, like you know, we're in the hot tub and. My my says, what's that on your shoulder? Wait, that's the striations. I can actually see the striated muscle on your shoulders. What's going on? Um, Yeah, and I didn't do, I didn't count any calories. I didn't track anything. I didn't change anything about exercise, like with a possible exception. I got into blood flow restriction training, but Mm. it's very questionable whether that was the thing that made the difference.
0: Mm. Yeah, Uh, in all our research and my experience, um, yeah, dialing and protein percentage is just. The biggest single fact you can do, yeah. like we're talking about before, everything else is sort of the minor icing on the cake. Nutrient density is really cool, but the amino acids is what your body needs, and once you get enough of them, right, you just sort of stop eating to to some extent. But you can take it too far to the other extreme, and if you're an endurance athlete, you probably don't want to be on. Sixty exactly. percent protein, like you are preparing for a stage show in two <laughs> weeks. It's, it's like let's dial it down. So that's sort of the the nuance that I am trying to get through to people. Hey, if you are obese and eating ten percent protein, let's try fifteen, and then let's try twenty. And if that doesn't work, let's try twenty five. And and once you reach your goal, let's bring it back down so you can get more energy into fuel your activity. But yeah, that's definitely that the protein leverage is just the it's real the biggest factor that yeah in like Robin Hummer and Simpson have proved it in all the different organisms that they've looked at from pond slime to grasshoppers and in humans yeah we've got data that just demonstrates it again and again and once you actually do a little bit of quantification and look at your diet you're dialing it up just is is the biggest simplest mm-hmm. factor to make sure you don't continue to overeat so to go back to the the, the story you were uh you became the go-to for Rob Wolf and Ben Greenfield, cashed up endurance athletes and everybody came to you with uh, plenty of cash to do tests and so you started doing all the tests and then started seeing the same person again and again and, and said, hey, wait up, I've got a, a background in programming. I can uh, save these people some money and, and, and create some software. Tell us about that journey. That's I'm completely exactly right. fascinated by what you've done with uh, yeah. Blood Smart. Uh, I think it's incredible
1: yeah i think you i think you nailed it yeah it gets i mean just we just saw like copies of me like the the people would listen to the podcast and hear that story like hey that sounds like me i should talk to that guy and of course there were people with very similar histories and very similar backgrounds in endurance and we'd run the same tests you know we were i mean we felt it was necessary to look Mm. inside right like i'm a strong believer in validated learning right like and, and of course mm. you are as well marty that um, it's useful to take a measurement to see where you are and then you make some mm. change and mm. then you take the measurement again right like and you, you figure mm. out where it, what, what's happened since the last time and then you iterate and the the test we were doing blood and urine and stool tests and in the early days we did some saliva tests as well and you just see the same thing and over and over and over and over again And you start to wonder, well, I wonder if there's a way that you could, like, predict the results of this, given these patterns. And, of course, that's exactly what supervised machine learning does. And so I took myself off to the Data Institute in San Francisco, and I learned how to do data science with a very interesting guy called Jeremy Howard. And he now has a library called Fast.ai that does deep learning. And it turns out that deep learning was not the algorithm I used in BloodSmart in the end, but it does have um, lots of fantastic uses outside of tabular data. You know, so in image recognition and uh, some other applications too. But uh, gradient boosting, XGBoost is super good for tabular data, you know, of the type that you could display in a spreadsheet. Mm. And so that's what, Uh, We started doing, we started using uh, historical data to predict the results of a blood test that someone hadn't done yet. Mm. And the machine learning models turned out to have really good sensitivity and specificity. And it wasn't the ground truth, right? It was more like the weather forecast or maybe a recommender system. You know, you do a basic blood chemistry and maybe the software come back and say, it kind of looks like you might have low testosterone. You might want to think mm. about measuring testosterone directly. Mm. And so rather than just blindly choosing tests, because mm. if you've ever seen the Quest catalog, Quest is the lab provider in the U.S. here. It's yeah. like as thick as a phone book, you know? Yeah. Um, which I remember, ones do you
0: pick and how do you ever? Yeah, like where, you where do you go next? Do you like, just like, keep what, testing? And yeah. Which, I suppose which you, which you, your, your clients would have come in the door and here's a whole ream of tests yeah. you could do and not everybody can afford that level of testing. But with BloodSmart, you've taken... Here's the test you get from your doctor every time you go visit them. Let's right. drop the numbers into Blood Smart. It'll tell you you look like someone who's got low iron or high iron or exactly lead toxicities or what I want to talk about later is the the nutrient deficiencies, which are right. completely fascinating. Then you can dive down the hole a little bit more and pay money if you want to for that test, or just behave as if you do have, you know, right this nutrient density deficiency and, and treat it which is not going to
1: harm you exactly exactly and and the thing that's worth understanding is that when it comes to blood tests that not they're not all priced equally right so mm. you know a, a complete blood count might just be six bucks in the u.s mm. but you know if you want to measure your level of methylmalonic acids in blood you know i don't even know how much it is i'm guessing it'll be somewhere between 75 and 100 bucks right mm. and so you know, if you want to measure do a test like that for all of the micronutrients, mm. you can put together a, you know, a blood test that costs $2,000, yeah. like no trouble at all. Yeah. Um, and obviously for most people, that's, that's not going to be something they're going to be doing validated learning with, right? Like you, yeah. you, you, you've got to get more targeted than that for most people's financial taste. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you've taken all the data from how many days of, how many tests did you use? What was the, the data it's- set you used?
1: in the range of tens of thousands of data and it's a mixed data set some of which is mm. publicly available and some of which is data that we've collected when working with clients over mm. the years um, so now you know we'd have i mean basically the the tagline is that somebody else already did that test for you so why you doing <laughs> it again right um some, somebody already i mean the people yeah in the beginning we had people that would think nothing of spending five thousand dollars on mass spec they really wouldn't care they would like you say mm. no this is nuts like we can't spend all this and they would say no no i just want to do it let's just do it you know, it doesn't really mean anything to them and of mm. course especially i feel like triathletes especially are like very
0: price I'm really expensive. motivated and cash yeah up. like they, they can buy spend, a ten thousand dollar bike
1: they do they spend 50, like ten fifteen thousand dollars on a bike and they don't even ask for a discount you know like I, I, I know what's going on over there with triathlon mountain bikers are always looking for a deal you know but triathletes yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so did you want to share the screen? And uh, show sure. Us your, um, show us through your test results and what you can learn from it. Um, uh, yeah, ju- jump in eventually to the, the nutrient aspect because I think there's some real nice synergies okay. there with nutrient optimizer okay. and, and dialing that in. But tell us, show us, show it off. Yeah, what so this is learn?
1: my data that we're looking at right now. Um, and some of it is just an implementation of an algorithm that's in the published literature. So for example, this overall wellness score that you can see top left here Mm. is an implementation of the horn tool that is in the scientific literature. And this is pretty nice. They just use uh, common laboratory tests Mm. to predict mortality. And the type of model that they use is nice in that it spits out these coefficients that allows you to make adjustments. Anyone could do this. You could do this with a spreadsheet if you wanted Mm. to. Um, And basically what it's predicting is your risk of dying in the next five years. Only (laughs) People don't like to hear that. So we scaled it out of a hundred and called it the overall wellness score. Right, like, like that's really what it is. It's like how likely are you to die in the next five years. You don't really
0: want to know if you're going to die in a year. No. Um, you're going to die next Tuesday. Oh,
1: great. Yeah. No one wants to know that. Right. Um, and, and and this, this bullet chart you can see here, the shaded blue area over towards the right here, this is the interquartile range. So it's just the mm. difference between 25 and 75%. Mm. And uh the solid tick in the middle is the median, uh, and it's stratified by age group here. And it's actually really hard to get into the interquartile range, because all of the people that we work with,
0: like, they do, they <laughs> do health. like the average Yeah, they're
1: like world champion health people. And uh, I have actually in the past, when I really focused on this, I did get a perfect hundred in the past. But at the moment I don't even make it into the interquartile range, it might be like Strava as well. You know, back in the day, I could get onto the, I could get the king of the mountain on some like famous climbs in the East Bay, in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, and then like, this is like 10 years ago, right now. And now you'll be lucky. Like all of the pros are at the top of the king of the mountain chart on Strava. So like, there's no way I can get anywhere near the, the first page of the results. And I think the same might be going on here now. Like we've had, you know nearly uh, four and a half thousand people do this and the interquartile range is kind of hard to get into these days um so, so this, I think you this a this is a
0: blood test every quarter you can drop your data into here and just see how you track yeah. and the overall wellness score it's as exactly. a headline marker
1: and, and i'm not showing it here but this, the software does support the ability to daisy chain reports together so you can see the time series mm. uh over time which i I, th- I think is actually kind of helpful too Mm-hmm. Um, just so you can tell, you know, like you make changes. Like, so for in 2016, I was doing keto and, um, you know, what, did, how, how, you know, how did that ch- you know, how did that differ? How did that change my overall wellness score is I think an interesting question to ask. Mm-hmm. It, it actually wasn't good for my body composition in the end. I got kind of fat eating keto. Mm. Um, and i think that was just because of the refined oils you know like just you yeah. know, end up just drinking fat which is probably not a good idea um, yeah, and just,
0: just the protein to energy ratio is just so low it's easy yeah. to overeat those foods so i think a lot of people found that after a few years of getting initial benefit and then they yeah went, oh wait up it's not the only thing that i need to think about when it comes to nutrition right low carb exactly. is good but lower carb is not necessarily better and unlimited fat is definitely not optimal
1: Exactly. So there's my perfect 100 back in 2018. And I'm actually kind of low at the moment compared to what I have been in the past. I think everyone's been struggling a bit with stress over the last yeah. couple of years. But I'll go back just to keep things simple. Um, I'll go back to the, the main dashboard. And then, so you can see the things that we've tested directly. So you go to the lab and you do this. It's 38 input markers that we measure directly. And these are really common lab tests. Every doctor understands them. We're not doctors at MBT, but if you go and see your doctor, they're going to understand what all of these things are. Mm. And um, we've taken the time to define these optimal reference ranges. Mm. My colleague, Megan, is the is the one with the academic background who has the ability to go into the literature and find these optimal reference ranges. And they're mostly based on all cause mortality. Mm. So The problem is, you see, when you get back the results from Quest or LabCorp, if you're in in the U.S., I'm not sure who it is in, in Australia. But usually the, the reference ranges are just two standard deviations either side of the mean. And, of course, who's going to get that blood test done? Well, it's right. someone that's not feeling good that went to the doctor, yeah. right? And so if you're interested in optimal, you're probably not going to find it by looking yeah. at the standard reference range. So that's the need for the optimal
0: reference ranges. Mm. And so none of your t- elite athletes fit into the optimal reference range, or the, the normal reference range, which is defined by yeah. the 70-year-old who goes to the doctor every few months but the healthy people are not heading off to the doctor because they're they're feeling good
1: right exactly Mm. exactly uh so you can see here for example our optimal reference range for fasting glucose is 82 to 88 milligrams per deciliter it's like really tight yeah and uh, lower is not necessarily better when it comes to fasting glucose and we have you know i can give you all of the you know the references are in the bibliography if, if yeah, you're wow. interested in diving into that and then we've done the same yeah. for hemoglobin a1c and a bunch of other markers so we take these things that are measured directly um wow look at my ldl jesus I'm probably gonna have a heart attack aren't i <laughs> oh, oh wait hang on ldl doesn't cause cardiovascular disease so I'm probably gonna be all
0: right um, go, go, go back to the malcolm kendrick episode that yeah. <laughs> was really good mind blown. and basically the the outcome of that he just said if you've got diabetes your risk of heart disease is really high and that's what you need to manage and big to manage your risk one. of diabetes, it's it's for most people other than yourself who's an elite athlete. It's just being over fat and, and, and being above your uh, personal fat threshold. So, yeah, it's interesting. With Go, go back to the, the fasting blood sugar. That, that's interesting that it's that tight. And, and I suppose when you get below that 82, you're in the, um, you know, You might be anorexic or anemic or or very frail at that point. You've you've overfasted, you've got a problem with food and go on. I
1: I was just gonna say that, you know, like everything in physiology is uh, a U shaped curve. Do you remember?
0: It's fascinating.
1: Like, <laughs> that's my favorite of
0: chart of trends. <laughs> <laughs> graph of any friggin' thing whatsoever. <laughs> it's an optimal range.
1: Like everything, that... like, so people should be surprised that there's like a lower limit. I mean, and, and the other one that's really strong for all-cause mortality, like super low total cholesterol in women, mm. like below 120 milligrams per deciliter, is like a really strong signal. Mm. I forget exactly what the hazard ratio is, but it's really strong to the point mm. where in the US. Some life insurance companies won't cover you if you're a woman and wow. your total cholesterol is that low. Um, so yeah, some like things the doctors didn't tell you, right? Um, yeah, so we, and
0: we we always like to think in simple linear relationships that more is better and lower yeah. carb is better or, or lower fat is better or higher fat is better or more protein or less for, It's just crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we take these things that we measure directly. We give you optimal reference ranges, and then um, from that, I can give you a forecast using these machine learning models. Mm. Actually, maybe I'll show you this screen, the bar chart. Um, And we're particularly interested in some of the nutrients. Mm. Um, So what I've done here is I've used gradient boosting, which is a machine learning algorithm, and you can think of it just as pattern recognition. And so what the machine learning model has done is it's been trained using historical data where the person has measured, so let's take this top prediction here, elevated apolipoprotein B. So that Mm. person has done the 38 things that I measured directly, and they also measured the blood level of apolipoprotein B. And from that, the machine learning model learned to identify the pattern Mm. of elevated apolipoprotein B. And so it can then recognize that pattern again in the future using new data where you didn't measure that Mm. dependent variable, we call it directly. Um, So it's just basically pattern recognition is what Mm. it is. And it's not perfect, you know, it's like the weather forecast. I mean, quite often it's wrong, but it's useful enough for you to keep coming back and looking at it right Um, and
0: and rather than doing all those tests straight up you can go okay here's one or two tests you may want to do to confirm it or like you often say what's going to be the harm if you behave like someone with low iodine or or elevated fluoride or whatever it's not going to kill you it's going to be healthy anyway to, to do those actions
1: Exactly. And so we have this arbitrary cutoff here. You can see on the bar chart, there's a dashed line, and that's the 50% probability. And it's a somewhat conventional but arbitrary cutoff. You know, below 50%, the machine learning model thinks probably not. When it's above 50%, the model Hmm. says probably yes. When it's 50%, it's equivocal. I have no call Hmm. either way. Hmm. Um, And they're also explainable. I'll go back to this view um, so if I go to, say, sticking with this example, apolipoprotein B, um, oh, look, I've got a hat tip to my <laughs> <sighs> uh, Malcolm Kendrick podcast. That was a really good episode. Um, yeah. So you, as you can see, um, this is the explanation for the prediction. And apolipoprotein B is is explained almost entirely by my LDL level mm. and my total cholesterol uh, and then somewhat by these monocytes. and mean platelet volume but it's mostly driven by LDL so you know what does that really tell you how would I want to intervene with that well I'm probably not going to all I mean I think at some point when LDL is like through the roof you have to think about is there some other evidence for hypothyroidism because the LDL receptor Mm. is activated by thyroid hormone and we sometimes see that's the reason why it's so elevated
0: so I might want to consider that there Um, but from the Nutritional Basically, what what are going to say there is that you can dive into the reason for that. And if you or Megan or someone you're consulting with doesn't think that that's a big risk factor for you, then you can downgrade that and focus on other things. And I suppose that's one thing you've continued to reinforce is this this sort of a detective system that helps you dig into it. But you know, a lot of the time, people will benefit from a bit of interpretation and guidance of what to do with this information.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, in some ways I haven't really solved the problem. All I've done is move it around. Mm. You know, it used to be you ran a blood test and you wouldn't know how to interpret it. Well, now you run a simple blood test. I give you a bunch of machine learning algorithm predictions, and then you don't know, need to know how to interpret those. So mm. for example, we found from experience that the models are particularly sensitive in their predictions around um, metals. And so we know that you know if the prediction is not above ninety percent, yeah, probably not. And the reason we know that is because we've sent enough people back to the lab and we've measured it directly. So, for example, methyl mercury, there's a lab, their name is Quicksilver Scientific, and they will measure your blood level of mercury and they'll go beyond that and they'll speciate it and tell you the difference between the methyl and uh, inorganic mercury. Methyl mercury comes predominantly from eating fish and the inorganic comes predominantly from mercury amalgams and we've sent enough people to the lab to know now that if it's not above 90 percent you're probably not going to find something interesting on the the quicksilver scientific test although there's like more shades of gray here and that you could argue that there's no good test for it because mostly these metals get sequestered away somewhere like in bone and they shouldn't really be floating around in the blood anyway. Mm. And so You're trying to find them point. using any test is mm. is like rather challenging. Um, but um yeah, still the predictions are useful nonetheless.
0: Mm. So what do you got? Do you want to look at the what was? The nutrients, yeah. Yeah.
1: The nutrients. Um so again for me, um, you know, folate and B twelve historically have been a problem for me that I've not really been able to solve with diet alone. And so, what happens is, you know, for me as an athlete, uh, where is it here? So, RDW is red blood cell distribution width. Mm. And I think it's a great marker of nutritional status because mm. you need B12 and folate for a baby red blood cell to mature. So, I have on here reticulocytes. of baby red blood cells and as a red blood cell matures it ejects the nucleus and that makes more room for a protein called hemoglobin and the hemoglobin Mm. is what transports oxygen around your body and the reason I know and care about this is because I'm an athlete right and of course transporting (laughs) oxygen is super important for that type of athletic performance and in the past I've gotten really good at optimizing my hemoglobin levels by using micronutrients So I know what happens like I get deficient in B12 and folate specifically and then my RDW starts to go up as it's up on this one and my MCV starts to go up. So MCV is mean corpuscular volume. That's measuring the size, the average size of the red blood cells. And the reason my MCV is elevated is because one would assume I could do a blood, I could actually do a smear, I could go further in this investigation and have a pathologist actually do a blood smear and have a look at the cells directly. But I think what they'd find is like some of the cells, some of my red blood cells are still nucleated. They still have a nucleus Hmm. and that's because they haven't matured properly and it's probably because of ab 12 and or folate deficiency. Hmm. And in the past, I fixed that by taking those things as supplements. And then what happens is my RDW comes down, my MCV comes down and my hemoglobin comes up. My hemoglobin is actually kind of crap right now.
0: but that's um, critical to athletic performance. Endurance. It is.
1: It is. The last time this is not very old. When I did. When did I do this test? September of yep. this year, a couple of months ago. And uh, yeah, I would have sucked this cycle cross season. I would have sucked. But luckily, I didn't race cycle cross anyway because there were hardly any races anyway because COVID. But yeah. yeah, I mean, this is the type of feedback that I would use. Like I would optimize not just my nutrition but also my supplement mm. regime based mm. on these data.
0: Yeah, it's really powerful, and potentially you can just say, "Hey, uh, you know, what nutrients does it look like you're deficient in? Let's make sure, or, or it doesn't necessarily have to be deficient, does it? It's just lower, and then let's find the foods and meals that will help you dial that in." And that's where we're talking about potentially integrating into Nutrient Optimizer. You could come over a Nutrient Optimizer and tick the folate and B twelve box, and it'd tell you the foods and meals that would give you more of those nutrients and off you go and you, you wouldn't necessarily have to, to, to supplement Yeah, that's really cool so h- how are you going to use this to conquer the world what, what are the next <laughs> steps you are uh, we we're talking before you're in a bit of a holding pattern trying to work out yeah where to go next with this it, it does need a little bit of uh educated guidance before you throw people off the deep end into trying to understand their data
1: yeah, it's the direct to consumer thing has always been really challenging because, like I said, you have to integrate the person's history and their symptoms and what they care about the most. And it's very difficult to capture all of that nuance in a web page, right? It's like basically everything that Megan does, my colleague is just really, really good at interpreting these and helping people improve their health and performance. Like, how do I encapsulate all of that in a web page? Like, it's it's tricky, you know? And so where we've ended up is we run a monthly group program where we meet once a week on Zoom with a small number of people and we go through people's resort, uh, reports and we make specific recommendations uh, based on those reports. Like, So for me here, yeah, I want to think about B12 and folate again. Uh, what, something that comes up a lot for me over and over again is iron overload. And it's just because I eat a shit ton of red meat, right? And I just have a a tendency towards iron overload. And I manage that quite successfully by donating blood. So my ferritin is actually not too bad right now. It's 194. Uh, The optimal reference range um, is 50 to 200. So I'm like close to the top end. So I might need to consider donating blood again in the near future. Um, but yeah, that's what we've ended up is doing a group program where we talk to people one on one on Zoom rather than just giving them the report and saying knock yourself out. That's not worked too well for us in the past.
0: Yeah, potentially you could train other practitioners up to teach and we do. We do have implement.
1: We do have other practitioners who are using it with their clients and patients. But yeah, I mm. don't. You can't do without the practitioner. I don't think. Mm.
0: Yeah. So if somebody had data, could they go to your website and enter their data to get this interpretation to work out what they uh, may want to investigate further? But then they'd follow up with Megan to dig into it a bit more detail.
1: Exactly. And we can do that. Um, And actually, I do think we have a blood panel in Australia. We figured Hmm. that out. We have enough Australian clients where we've done that. But yeah, if you've already run a blood test, we can definitely run it through the software my experience has been, though, most people are not running a panel with even these 38 markers on. It's a $70 blood test in the U.S., hmm. and I think it's a bit more in Australia. Hmm. But even with it being not that much money, most people are not doing these, like, what I think is quite basic markers, Yeah. So which is unfortunate. But, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think much of just, like, entering your own data because you probably haven't got most of the markers anyway.
0: Right, yeah. A lot of them you get from your basic blood panel when you go to the doctor, but there's maybe a few others that you don't necessarily get. Yeah, like no one's,
1: no one, reticulocytes is a fantastic marker um, because it allows you to interpret your haemoglobin A1c hmm. right, so when the, the, the red blood cells, so you know that haemoglobin A1c is standardised hmm. around the blood cells living for 120 days but if they live for longer than that because you're super healthy then they ha- the cells have more time to become glycated and then you end up with a hemoglobin a1c that is higher than you would expect given Mm. your overall glucose control and then you see the opposite too you see people with super low hemoglobin a1c's but then you look at the red blood cell survival and it's way less than 120 days but you Mm. need the reticular sites in order to calculate that red blood cell survival Mm. so that's why we added reticular sites to our panel and then my software there's an algorithm right You, you need to implement the algorithm in order to get the red blood cell survival, mm. um, so I've done that for you, um, and actually my hemoglobin A1C is really is five point one, which is like definitely perfect. on the lower side for me. Yeah. It is perfect, but the like a, the, my red the red blood cell survival is only eighty three days. Right. right, I I think that that like, kind of it's not as it's good a as bit it of a goes. red
0: flag for Chris
1: maybe yeah i mean i this is actually this test is one of my worst ones i think something was going on with my gut you know my eosinophils mm. which is a type of white blood cell is 8.1 percent like that's one of the highest results i've seen mm. and like that's kind of my history is gut problems and it's always mm. um it's always uh you know an ongoing battle to keep it in tip-top condition uh might see nelson use this term the porcelain doll diet. Uh, whilst I, this <laughs> is a fragile it, well, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like it's perfect. Like if I can just like get all, everything lined up perfectly, then my gut is absolutely fine. But you know, if I if I do something crazy like eat out, then
0: like it all comes tumbling down. <laughs> cool so to learn more about all this is it BloodSmart AI, bloodsmartai bloodsmart.ai to, ai to check it out and they can work out what they can do with the data that they've got and yeah exactly connect with you guys to dig into it a little bit more and then if then they could potentially come back to nutrient optimizer.com and into those deficiencies and identify what uh, foods and meals they might need to eat more of
1: that would be cool. Yeah, bloodsmart.io will give you all the options. There's a software as a service business for practitioners. You can see the link for that. And then mm. we do the group program and that's linked from there too now. But yeah, that that would be cool, wouldn't it? If I could like find the deficiencies mm. over here and then send you over to Nutrient Optimizer so that you could, you know what foods exactly to eat to fix those deficiencies without using a bunch of software. That's a, that would be an interesting challenge, wouldn't it? Could I, could I do that? could I get my hemoglobin back into the optimal reference range without taking supplements? Did it, is that possible? But I just didn't know how to optimize my diet as well as is possible.
0: There you go. I don't should, know the answer uh, to that. We should keep keep chatting. That'll, uh, that'll be a fun little project for both of us for the next few months. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, speaking of supplements, I suppose it'd uh, be interesting to chat about your four-quadrant model that you rave on about, and I'm quite fascinated. And I suppose, again, taking through the journey of, chris's learning experience going from i know nothing about nutrition to i'm going to dial in all the testing and take all the supplements to address the deficiencies and then you've come back to a much simpler approach based on this four quadrant approach so um, yeah just take us through that and and how it affects how you treat yourself and, and your clients mm-hmm. and going from what we find w- the more things you throw at people, the less likely that it's going to be able to continue to do it. Mm -hmm. If you overwhelm people, they're going to fall off and not be able to continue for the long term. So if you make it as simple and just develop habits as possible, then uh, you're going to get a much better long-term outcome. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, that was the appeal of this four-quadrant model to me was when working with clients, one of the things I hear the most is I just feel completely overwhelmed. You know, I just to... 700 episodes of the Ben Greenfield podcast and uh, not to pick on Ben, but you know what I mean? You you listen to all the podcasts and you try and integrate all of the things. And it's just completely overwhelming. Like Mm. everyone is talking about, you know, the next smoking gun and silver bullet. And like, how do I integrate all of this? Like, what is Mm. the most important thing I should think about next? And so this four quadrant model gives us the ability to prioritize the interventions. And I certainly can't take the credit for it, I work Mm. with a very smart neurologist. His name is Dr. Josh Turknet. And if you know anyone with a headache, you should send them to his website, mymigrainmiracle.com, where he does fantastic work. He was actually just on STEM Talk recently, where he talked about the potential of a ketogenic diet for migraines. And it's very, Mm. very promising. But Josh Mm. is a fantastic thinker. He is the current president for Physicians for Ancestral Health. And mm-hmm. he came on my podcast and told this fantastic story that is also on the Ancestral Health Symposium. He did a talk there a couple of years ago where he told this story. And it, it's pretty short. It's pretty simple. I like imagine an alien planet and an iPhone arrived there and it was completely foreign to the alien inhabit- inhabitants. But these aliens, they were a sort of a competitive bunch and they decided they wanted to run a competition around winning the game of Angry Birds that just happened to run (laughs) on this iPhone, right? Like imagine that. (laughs) And they decided that they were going to split into two teams and one of the teams was going to win the game by just playing it, just like anyone would, just like my kid would, like you give them the game, they just figure out how it works, they press the buttons and they get good at it that way, just in the way that anyone normally would. And then the other team, they decided to take this reductionist approach, right? Like they realized that the it's just a two D illusion on the front of the glass, and underneath the glass there is electronics, and you know there's various different components in the electronics. There's resistors and capacitors, and all this stuff, and silicon, and and so they take that apart and they realize in on the silicon it's like running some sort of code, and like there's a there's a kind of a high level language, and underneath that there's a a machine language, and then underneath that, there's like ones and zeros. So they try and understand this game using this uh, reductionist approach. And so a certain amount of time passes, and one team just plays the game, and the other team, like they take it apart and try and figure out how it all works. And of course, when game day arrives, who, who do you think is going to win this? You're an engineer, Marty. Let's see see what you think. Who do you think's going to win? <laughs>
0: Probably the, the, the team that just played the game and got good at it the and had fun doing The team that just it.
1: played the game, of course, <laughs> because there's not an engineer alive that could possibly explain how the game of Angry Birds worked <laughs> on an iPhone at that level. It's just like, no one, Like it's amazing. Like, these, don't you think that's incredible? It blows my mind sometimes. Like I'm, you know, or like the Mac that I'm looking at right now, there is not a single engineer at Apple that understands how all of that works, mm. right? Like the, everybody just knows like one tiny part of it yeah and Um, that's what we
0: try to do with nutrition and and biology again and again as we say we've got the the secret hack and just pay money you can get this solution right but it's only one little part of the solution rather than the big picture
1: exactly and so you know how complicated is the game of angry birds with respect to biology it's actually pretty simple right like Mm. biology is way more complicated than the game of angry birds Mm. but as josh points out in his talk this is the approach that they have taken in medicine, is this reductionist approach, mm. like understanding the component parts, like enzymes and neurotransmitters mm. and all these different bits and pieces. And then they, the intervention point is like, well, let's just block this pathway here. And then maybe we can stop the production of this cholesterol thing that's causing all this cardiovascular disease. And we're going to save everyone from having heart attacks, right? That's that's going to work, like, and and of yep. course, it doesn't work. And they, you know, the, it's a great failure of medicine mm. that they've failed to leverage all of this understanding um, by choosing this way of intervening. And in some respect, in some ways, the pharmaceutical industry is a huge failure because they've really failed to take sufficiently um, take on the hardest problems right let's say migraine is a really good one there aren't really any good drugs for migraines at least not ones that don't cause rebound headaches and then of course obesity diabetes hypertension there aren't really any good drug solutions for those either obesity of course is the big one um so what do you do well you do the same thing that the aliens did rather than trying to understand biology at this reductionist source code level. We instead take a different approach and just play the game. Now, of course, the the question then becomes is like, well, what is the game? And I think we know, I think that ancestral health gives us a pretty good idea of how to play the game. You know, humans Mm -hmm. have been walking around on this planet and their ancestors for millions of years under the same light dark cycle Mm. eating food that was either hunted or gathered. And we know how they lived, right? They lived in tribes and we know that they weren't under chronic stress. We know quite a lot about Mm. how humans lived in the past before the invention of modern technology that changed everything about our environment. You think Mm. 200 years ago, nobody had electric lighting, right? (sighs) That's crazy. That's a big change. Um, Now you can make it daytime during the night. And of course, that has profound effects on... Mm all of our biology and of course especially sleep um so the so the four quadrant model um what you do is um it makes this distinction between the game level and the source code right so at the top we've got the game level interventions and then on the the y-axis the vertical axis we've got the difference between things that support our physiology and things that disrupt it they disrupt the status quo in order to create an advantage state so we always start in the top left quadrant one and these are things that are both a game level intervention meaning they're evolutionarily familiar and they are supportive of the physiology so examples of these interventions are sleep and movement sleep reduction stress reduction rather ancestral diet which is just minimally processed like a diet that's constructed by the nutrient optimizer for example uh, circadian alignment um, meaning that you're getting plenty of bright light during the day and avoiding light at night uh, walking functional movement dance music social clubs and rituals uh, pets you know um, you know you, you get it right like these are all the things that are supporting our physiology and these are the things that we worry about first Basically and
0: living the way you might have lived a thousand or ten thousand years ago, going exactly. back to that, which is the, the, the way our body is adapted to, to operating.
1: Exactly. And what we found is it doesn't need to be perfect, you know, like close enough is 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 good enough. Um it doesn't it's not a reenactment. Like that's the classic straw man argument against the paleo diet and ancestral health is you know, we can't all live like cavemen. And no, okay, that's not the point. Like, yeah. you just need to be close enough. You need, just need to mm. avoid the mismatches is the main thing. You just need to mm. minimize mismatch, not completely eliminate it. Mm. Um, and then you move on to quadrant two. So now these are things that are evolutionarily familiar, but they're disrupting their physiology to create some advantage state. So these are things like mm. the ketogenic diet and hot-cold exposure and fasting and high-intensity interval training and weightlifting um, and all of these things can obviously make us stronger. A little bit of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. However, that doesn't work unless you've got the foundational things in place, right? I don't. I would argue if you're not sleeping very well, there might not be any point in doing high-intensity interval training, right? Like you might not get any benefit from that. You need to have the foundation in place.
0: Yeah. And then so once you've to- got a small hormetic stress that pushes your body a little bit to adapt, based on the foundation of evolutionary appropriate environment and then you can afford to push your body a little bit more to adapt and improve and change but yeah exactly
1: and so now we're on to quadrant three this bottom left yellow corner and these now we're we're kind of we're tinkering in the source code right like we're exploiting our um, reductionist understanding of the biology albeit limited there is some and we're trying to support the physiology So a nutrient deficiency would be one example of an intervention here, right? I measured your blood level of zinc, or maybe I've got some prediction from BloodSmart, and I'm now going to supplement with that thing in order to try and fix that deficiency. Now you would argue that the best way to do that is with food, and I wouldn't argue against you. Right, like the quadrant one <laughs> start would be with the, the food back diet. in the quadrant one before yeah. you
0: dump and in a handful of. Exactly,
1: and if you if you nail the quadrant one, you probably won't ever need the quadrant three. Right? <laughs> um, but nevertheless, sometimes it's it's helpful. Uh, to tinker around in the source code. Actually, vitamin D, I think, is a a valid example, especially here in the Northern Hemisphere As in December as we head into the winter. And, you know, there's lots of people living at latitudes where it's impossible to make Hmm. vitamin D from the sun. Even here in Santa Cruz in Northern California, it's
0: basically impossible to make vitamin D from the sun right now. And believe me... it's definitely hard to get enough from food alone. And the the recommended daily intakes are based on getting a lot of sun and a lot of people don't get enough sun these days where it's oh, like yeah, where sure. you like and say north or south of the equator
1: yeah you, you really can't like back in July I would sunbathe and I'd be making 300 IU per minute mm. and now I get like maybe a one hour window and it's really hard for me to find a sunny spot because the trees just like block the sun all the time. And uh, most I can make is three thirty IU per minute. And I think at mm. some point later this year, the ability to make vitamin D from the sun will disappear completely. And that's a mismatch right um d minder to calculate
0: that or yeah calculate... exactly
1: that's how i know that's how i know mm-hmm. d Minder is a really nice app the, the interface mm. doesn't look it's kind of ugly but it works really well yeah. um and so yeah maybe i mean that is what i do i now take ten thousand IU iu vitamin d mm. every day and i'll continue to do that until the sun comes back and then i'll stop yeah. um but with that if i didn't if i hadn't measured my 25 my level of 25 hydroxy vitamin d in the blood like i wouldn't know this you know mm. Or maybe I could, maybe you could argue just, no, you're not going to be able to make vitamin D. But you could also argue that you could make enough during the summer that you wouldn't need it in the winter, you know. So I only mm. know that to supplement that much because of the, mm. the blood tests. Yeah. Um, okay, so now we move into quadrant four. So these are things that are both tinkering in the source code and they're trying to disrupt the physiology to create an advantage state. And this is all pharmaceuticals, as far as mm. I know. Can you think of a pharmaceutical that would be a quadrant three? Can you think of something <laughs> like no. They're all
0: no.
1: they're all like trying to tinker in the source code and create some advantage state.
0: We're trying to win at Angry Birds by pulling apart the iPhone and exactly. understanding the zeros and ones and the, and you know Yeah, it doesn't work not actually doesn't playing work. the game.
1: Yeah. And you could also throw um nootropics under the bus here. Um and you know, maybe hyper supplementation as well. Oh. Um there are like a few examples. So if you think about actually um, Monica's example, like the insulin mm. in the type one diabetic, yeah. like that's, that's where the quadrant four works really well, right? Like where yeah. the, the physiology is like hopelessly broken. The status quo is no insulin. And mm. I mean, she would die, right? If she didn't Definitely. have it. And so that's when you really need a, a, a drug is when the, the, the physiology is hopelessly broken beyond repair. Yeah. Uh, so but, but a asked, lot of those aren't.
0: quadrant fours are just treating symptoms, and you know, using exogenous insulin to suppress blood sugars for people with type two diabetes, yeah. where the best approach is, you know, manage your diet and activity and, and lose some weight, and you're going to be in a much better position. And again, again, you know, the ramming down your cholesterol to manage that symptom is not necessarily going to protect you from uh, heart disease as well as being fit active and eating well again and again it goes back to quadrant one right That's why i love it
1: yeah exactly yeah so Saturns are a really good example and, and given the blood chemistry i just showed you if you know, i went to see my primary care doctor they'd probably want to put me on one right yeah. like even though i i don't have a disease even though i have a you know, a zero coronary artery calcium scan mm. score, they would probably still want to put me on. And you could argue, oh, maybe that's not such a bad thing. You know, if I'm doing all of the things in quadrant one, then maybe there's not too much harm in that. But, I mean, if you were to start there, you know, if I was to walk in and I was sleeping like shit and my diet was crap, well, my, fr- you know, my doctor's not going to ask me. Well, they might ask me, but they're not really going to, it's not going to be the first. Yeah. Like I said with Jamie, like she had seven minutes with each patient. Yeah. I don't think she's going to spend too much time talking about my ancestral diet, right? Um, and so starting with quadrant four is like, I mean, clearly it's a disaster. It's like just not going to get you the outcome you want, which is... It's to, just
0: sticking band-aids all over the symptoms all the time without actually managing yeah. the fundamental problem, which is yeah, yeah and so that's largely that's, related to what we eat and how we move and how we sleep.
1: Yeah, and and so that's the genius of this system is it allows us to prioritise the interventions, mm. and um, you can find Josh wrote an article about it as well at jturk mm. <laughs> very clever. Uh, his name's Josh Turknet, and uh, yeah, he has a if you go to forward slash quadrants, and maybe you can link to this. He has yeah, a, an article. Uh, link to it has, in the show notes. Yeah,
0: that's great. That's been really fun. So, any other thoughts of what would you tell Chris seven years ago that you've learnt now? Wow. Seven years ago.
1: See that, like I was still do. I was like in this business seven years ago. Right? So that would like have to be something that's changed uh, since I quit my job. You know, I wish, I mean, it- this thing, the quadrant model is the thing I wish I had mm-hmm. in 2014, honestly. Like mm-hmm. if I was to name one thing. I think it would have to be this quadrant model or like I kind of knew I had all the bits and pieces floating around. It's not like we were telling to eat people to eat something other than an ancestral diet in two thousand and fourteen. It's just that I didn't have this system to prioritize everything like mm. I do now um, and then maybe the other thing is the protein leverage i think that mm. was I think a really wow. a game changer to like understand that 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 really it's like. The decision, like what you eat is a conscious choice, but how much you eat is yeah. subterranean. That's an unconscious choice. And the protein is the main lever there. I think, yeah. I wish I'd known that in the yeah. beginning as well. And I, I kind of, I think Stefan Guine came really close yep. um, to giving us some really, well, he did. He gave us some really, really useful information with his book, The Hungry Brain. Mm. Um but I don't think he emphasized protein quite as mm. much as I've seen to be effective when
0: working with clients. And I'm sure you'd agree with that too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Stefan's great. And it, it's definitely your brain, your appetite driving you to eat more. Yeah. But the, what the, the fascinating next question is what do I need to eat to satisfy my brain? What does my brain want? What does my mm-hmm. biology require to thrive and to be satisfied with enough food, but not too much? And, yeah, that's, that's incredibly fascinating, nutrient density, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So I love that stuff. So, um, yeah, where can people find Chris Kelly, Nourish Balance Thrive, all over the place?
1: Uh, yeah, nourishbalancethrive.com is our main website. Yeah. And that's where you'll find the podcast. I continue to enjoy the podcast. It is pretty amazing. I mean, that's a re- yeah. Josh is a really good example there. Where you know, I feel like a barbarian. Do you know, the, in, in the old days, the barbarians would show yeah. up and they would steal all the grain from the silo and they could just like make <laughs> off with a you know a year's worth of work in in just like a few minutes. And I, I feel the same is true with knowledge. You know, like you get mm. somebody on the podcast and they might have done four decades of careful experimental work. And yep. you can just make off with all of that wisdom in, in, in an hour. Like they'll tell you yeah, everything yeah. they know. And that's an incredible thing. And I continue to enjoy doing that on the podcast. Yeah. So that maybe that's a good place to,
0: for people to find me. Yeah, you've got a great slew of podcasts. How many have you got now?
1: I do one a week for, and I've been going about seven years. So I guess I've got like oh, 350 wow. or something like that episodes yeah. at this
0: point. It's an incredible resource and really valuable just to follow your learning journey. I just loved following, hey, what did Chris learn this week? And especially in the early days, your evolution of knowledge was just building on it again and again. And, yeah, I I learned a lot from that and definitely recommend people check it out.
1: My Um, favorite thing is when, um, you know, we have this forum uh, that's the other side of a Patreon paywall. And uh, some of my friends over there are, like, very generous. You know, when someone asks a question, they'll answer the question. Uh, by citing my podcast oh yeah this guy talks about and sometimes I like I won't even remember that I'd interviewed (laughs) that person let alone that they'd answered that question I'm like that's amazing yeah I should go back and I quite often go back and listen to old episodes again and like you know what did Stephen Porges say about the polyvagal Mm -hmm. theory like I forget like that's (laughs) important at the time and so it's like really fun to go back and listen to the episodes again sometimes
0: yeah that's great thank you so much for your time hope you have a great day or on the hour and is it time to go for a mountain bike ride and amazing no
1: it's uh it's four o'clock in the in the afternoon and we have just had some friends show up for dinner we <sighs> super early we're big fans of the early time restricted yeah. feeding that i'm sure you're familiar with too so definitely another
0: super hack if you can make it happen
1: oh uh, it is yeah so we're very, we're tremendously privileged in that. You know, I work from home and we all eat together. And, and so it's like no big deal for us to all eat. We eat three meals together, actually. Like, yeah, breakfast like awesome. a king, lunch <laughs> like a uh, prince, and then dinner like a pauper. But that's maybe it'll we'll awesome. be a bit bigger tonight because we've got some friends over. Have a party.
0: Cool. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been great to get to chat to you again. And uh, hopefully before another five years is up, we'll get to Yeah, again.
1: exactly. It's been a, pre- a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you, Marty. I really appreciate yeah.
0: it. Thanks for your friendship. See you, mate. Bye.